City. On Glam City, we speak to the hard-working people working in Australia's galleries, libraries, archives and museums. I'm Anna Clark, your host for today. And today, in this episode of Glam City, I'm honoured to be speaking with Bunurong, Panala Panna and Ewan author and historian Bruce Pascoe, who was the writer of Dark Emu, a really well-received book that was shortlisted for the Queensland Literary Awards, Victoria's Premier's Award, and it won the Indigenous Writers' Prize in 2016 in New South Wales. It's continued to have an enormous impact on the way Australians think about pre-colonial Aboriginal societies. And before we get into some of your more recent work, uh, Bruce, I was wondering, I wanted to ask, what prompted you to write Dark Emu? Well, I'd I'd already written um, a history of the contact wars in Australia, and while I was doing that, um, I kept on coming across references to Aboriginal people growing food uh, that seemed to be running against the idea of hunting and gathering. So I, I then you know, decided to do a more thorough investigation of it. And while I was doing that, I was getting copying a bit of flack from some academics um, saying that you know I was barking up the wrong tree, that... Aboriginal people were only hunters and gatherers and had nothing to do with agriculture at all. Uh, I thought, well, if I'm going to have any success in pursuing this argument, perhaps the only way to do it is through the explorers' journals. And as soon as I turned to the journals, um, I was just uncovering a wealth of material, direct observation of Aboriginal people interacting with uh, plants and animals and performing acts which were most certainly agriculture. Mm. And so uh, over five years, I trawled the archives as much as I could and I just came up with a welter of material of Aboriginal people irrigating crops, um, planting crops, harvesting crops, converting uh, crops into food, uh, preserving food, all of these things which are, you know, the things that hunters and gatherers are supposed not to do. But also, you know, came across thousands of references of Aboriginal houses. You know, these weren't huts, they weren't humpies, they weren't hovels, they were houses. Mm. Uh, And the houses were in villages, and the villages were organised along social lines. And, you know, there are other aspects of it. Cemeteries honouring the dead, which is supposed to be the only... Only the civilised did such things. All of these things were just telling me a completely different story to the one I grew up with uh, learning and learning at school. Mm. So I thought people would be interested in this. And once I started talking to um, university students and, you know, wider Australia, I was getting enormous um, encouragement and interest uh, for these ideas. And it convinced me that Australia was ready to have this kind of discussion. So... And that's what's happened. You know, you talk about the popularity of the book. Well, it's because Australia wants to have the discussion. So it's a a fabulous time uh, to be in this country. Yeah, it's a very um, positive message that it's that it's kind of that you're writing about, really. I mean, I've I've been doing some research on fishing, the history of fishing in Australia, and when I yeah. was trying to research some of that early sort of Aboriginal fishing practices, I was also really struck in those explorers' journals because that's really often the only sort of access point you get onto some of that pre-colonial mm. um, Aboriginal fishing and. 
also came across extraordinary material like that excerpt from Charles Sturt where how he described in his exploration party on the Macquarie River in western New South Wales that he walked into an Aboriginal village and in one of the huts mm. came across a fishing net that was 90 metres across, which is yeah. kind of, you know, you can almost imagine that now, that moment. Yeah. Yeah. Thing I, I live in, I've lived in fishing villages most of my time and I've rarely seen anything bigger than that. Yeah. 90 metres, yeah. you know. And what uh, the other thing they commented on when they saw those nets was that the, the knot in the net was exactly the same as they were using. Wow. Uh, so the human mind in on two different continents has come up with the same idea of yeah. how to make a fish net. Yeah. I mean, that's worth thinking about in itself. Absolutely. Um, but, you know, the 90, making a... a a net 90 metres wide is a huge application of labour and ingenuity, and yet well, I was never taught that in school. Yeah, and also... Um, I was also, always taught about uh, people spearing the occasional lucky kangaroo, you know. Yeah. Nothing about organisation, nothing yeah. about science and craft and um, ingenuity. And keeping that net in a, in a hut or a house, yeah. you know, as a, as a kind of an economic resource for that community is kind of a... Yeah, and, and having... Um, Outside the house, having dog kennels and, uh, you know, small yards for game birds and things like that, you know, just never mentioned in my schooling. And, you know, I think everyone in that colonial period perhaps were aware of the Explorers' Journals. They were, they were sort of popular journalism of the day. But when the country turned from being a penal colony to being a, an agricultural economy, uh, I think people then started thinking about legitimacy and things like that. And suddenly, uh, these things dropped out of public discourse, the things that you and I have been talking about. Um, and I think it was a deliberate act um, in order to preserve the legitimacy of the colony. And this is an extraordinary act of omission mm. in our history. And, you know, I think it's deliberate, mm. uh, obviously deliberate. And... And sad, because, you know, we, we teach our, our kids about gold and wool and all that sort of stuff, and yet there's all this other stuff mm. that any curious child would find fascinating. That act of um, forgetting, like you said, is always... Well, it's not just like forgetting your keys, is it? It's actually... It is an act no. of forgetting. And just yeah. conversely, the act of remembering is also... An act, and one of the things that you're now working on is another act of remembering, which is kind of reconjuring and and reconnecting with first languages. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yeah, look, we um, it's the languages have always always been a passion of mine because my in finding my family, you know, I had to first had to go through the history, and then once I'd done that, I thought, gee, I. I, I'd love to know the language, and so there were some uh, Aboriginal languages being studied at the time, and in Victoria, the only language being taught was Pichinjara, and I thought, well, this is that's not right, but there were other Aboriginal people who, like Uncle Sandy Atkins and Doris Payton, people like that, were working hard on bringing uh, languages to life and including them in uh, school curriculums. You know, that was... Very early stages, but then we got involved with First Languages Australia, and um, since then it's just accelerated incredibly. And um, we're celebrating the Indigenous languages this year, and the ABC have been fantastic in promoting it. 
And I, there's so much information about our country encapsulated in Aboriginal languages that, you know, we'd be silly um, not to get involved because it teaches us so much about our own land. And I think a lot of Australians want to belong here. Mm. They really want to belong to the land. And this is one of the acts of belonging mm. is to know the know the history of the place, obviously, but mm. also to know the languages of the place because it teaches you what your town's called. Mm. And I was on um, TV talking about the fact that I knew two of the three rivers where I live. I live at the junction of three rivers and I knew that Maramingo was fish beer and I knew that Maracuda meant sacred white pipe clay and I knew that Ginoa meant the footpath to the sacred mountain, all of those things I knew. But I didn't know the meaning of Wollongo, which is actually the river on which my farm is situated. We're on the junction of three rivers here. They've all got Aboriginal names. 60 to 70% of place names in Australia are Aboriginal names. And the name should be regarded like a treasure. Maramingo is the fish spear. Mingo, spear. Maramingo, place of fish spear. The Wallagara. We're not really sure what Wallagara means. And that's a shame. It means that we've lost a bit of our history. But we're going to regain it. And um, two days after that, I got an um, email from a woman who knew the man who owned the farm before me. And she said, my grandfather told me that Wallagra means scrub worm. And it just made complete sense because the shape of this river means that there's a lot of muddy banks and that's where the scrub worm is found. So, you know, just a simple thing like taking notice of languages meant that we got the meaning of word which we thought was lost. Now, I never used the word lost. Um, you know, we talk about, you know, the opportunity to find rather than lost. But that convinced me that those opportunities to find are still there. And if we involve ourselves in the languages, uh, it'll be totally positive. It's, it's a very positive and inclusive project, isn't it? Because you're suggesting that learning Indigenous language is important for all Australians, not just Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Oh, yeah, I, ne- I never talk about it as just being of interest to Aboriginal people. You know, I, I listened to the cricket the other day when I say the other day, the start of the summer, and the, it was the first test at uh, the Gabba, and the commentators in the prelims to the opening of the first test, which I never miss, um, were talking about the fact that Gabba was such a funny word, you know, and it came from the word woolen Gabba. They had no idea what it meant. They didn't care, and all their conversation was about how peculiar a name it was, and you know, it's the only ground in the world called Gabba, you know, how ridiculous, more or less. And I thought, you know, if they were true journalists, because sports commentators are journalists, if they were true journalists um, the night before, they would have rung up the local Aboriginal community and said, what does it mean? What does Woolen Gabba mean? Because this is a town where they live. You know, mm. this is their word as much as an Aboriginal word. Mm. And... If they'd you know, gone that far and found the meaning, they could have told the whole of Australia, the whole of sporting Australia anyway, who was listening at that time, they could have given them a piece of gold mm. and um, they failed to do it. So mm. this is why you know, we see the, the opportunity to introduce Australians to Aboriginal languages as being a, a positive experience for the country and for all 
all in the country. Yeah, it certainly um, gives pause for thought for myself. I you know, have a lot of um, family connections to this place as you're in country, I suppose, in southeast New South Wales and place names like yeah, Tarthra, you're right. you're Bega. Right in the middle of it there. Yeah, yeah and I, that's mm. right. And I I don't know the, what those names mean. And if there was a, mm. a, anywhere that I would call a sacred place to me, it would be that place. Um, yeah. You know, and I'm a historian and mm. uh, it, it's sort of it, – it, behoves on all of us to kind of um, reach back and find out the meaning of those places that we're connected to. Mm. Well, you and I have worked very hard um, at uh, language recovery and the mob at Jigami in Eden um, and and further north as well have come up with a, a language list that you know they've been retrieving from the elders and public record and things like that. And so all of those names, I'm pretty sure you'll find are, mm. are now recorded. And um, uh, Lynn Thomas uh, teaches at a Naruma um, State School. Uh, Lynn Thomas is a mine of information, um, as are the, the Ewan down at Eden. And I'm working with uh, that mob now, you know, building gardens, not working on language because I'm trying to recover those Aboriginal foods. But we talk about language all the time, and uh, just in our working life, and you know, in connection with family and family names and things like that. And it, it's a rich experience to mm. talk about your country in those terms. Mm. So, it actually, like you say, it hasn't been lost. There's been attempts to, you know, erase yeah. it, if you like, but it's it's there yeah. if you if you look hard enough. What what do you think are some of the benefits of reaching back and thinking about, you know, the places we love and are in and inhabit as Australians. What's, what's well, important Well, I, I think about there's it? a lot of history involved in language, uh, but there's also a lot of environmental knowledge. And it's clear uh, from the fact that we're abusing our rivers so badly that we need a bit of environmental knowledge. And one of the peculiar ideas of Aboriginal people is that we always expect there to be water in rivers. And, you know, I know it's a radical opinion, but it, we do well as a country to observe the fact that the Murray never went dry. Um, the Murrumbidgee never went dry, never had blue-green algae. And these are things that have happened in pursuit of the agricultural style that we want to use. There are other ways to do it. There are other ways to conduct agriculture, which mean that there's enough water in the river for people and for animals and fish. And surely now is a great time for us to investigate uh, those methods. And I, the plants that we're growing that don't need any more rainfall than the, the country can produce. They need no fertiliser. They need no pesticide because they're Australian plants. They're adapted to life in this continent. So we're not going to stop growing wheat and rye immediately, but surely we need to experiment with these plants, which, uh, while they don't have the same yield as wheat and rye and barley and oats, um, they do produce a yield, and they're per, per, uh, perennial. Mm. Um, you don't need to plough the land again. So they sequester carbon. All of these things are going to be vitally important. And, you know, when when a federal government suddenly decides that they are going to do something serious about climate change and altering the contribution that humans make to it, um, planting perennial grains will just about reverse that uh, problem on its own. Mm. Um, 
because there's so much carbon released by ploughing the land that we need to look very seriously at plants which don't need no ploughing. You're listening to Glam City on 2SER 107.3. To download this show, head to 2SER.com or your favourite podcast app and look for Glam City. This show is made by the Australian Centre for Public History, UTS, with the support of 2SER. Do you think that the powers that be are willing to listen? I mean, it seems like at the moment in Australian politics, there's a there are two conversations going on, and one of them is very grassroots. Um, pardon the sort of connection there, and um, you know, people, communities are eager and interested to connect to this yeah. indigenous narrative, our indigenous narratives, I should say, and also, you know, the, the statement from the heart um, and Uluru yeah. and so on, and the sorts of things that you're talking about of communities finding out about where they live. Uh, but at the, yeah. at the kind of federal level or at the political level, it feels like, you know, who's listening to this community conversation? Well, they're just locked into an argument between each other. Adversarial politics means that the opposition has to oppose and the um, the government has to refuse. Um, so we're going nowhere with the discussion there. And I've been saying um, in communities that we're wasting our time waiting for the government to come and help us. You know, that's been tried. We've tried Liberals, we've tried the Greens, we've tried the Nationals, we've tried Labor. None of them have actually done anything particularly proactive. You know, people talk to about Melbourne Fraser's actions which were good, uh, talk about Kevin Rudd's actions which were good. But in general terms, I think the people mm. have to come up with the solutions themselves and then wait for politicians to adopt them. And do you um, th- Because the politicians will adopt them once they realise that there's a body of people who will vote for that reform and whoever proposes it, they will vote for that party. Um, that's what politics really is. It doesn't get generated from the top down. It's a grassroots movement, and we need to take responsibility for it instead of sitting on our backsides, watching Channel 7 News and expecting the world to change. We need to change the world, and that's what happens. All the great reforms in life come from the people. We need to get involved as people. Look at a Adani mine. Who's driving that? Not the government. The government is driving the mine, but the opposition to it is coming directly from the people. Yeah. And is that where you think projects like like first languages, place names, and so on? There's an opportunity there to continue that community-driven, I guess, yeah, I think, contribution. And they're, they're such they're such gentle options. Mm. Um, you know, learning languages is such a gentle option. We're not talking massacres. Um, we're not talking political agitation. We're talking country. Um, and the same with the food that I'm going. I'm not talking massacres. I'm not talking political agitation. I'm talking food. Um, Let's come around the table and try this loaf of bread. It's incredible um, the ignorance people have of the history of this country. Absolutely incredible. And a lot of it is going to be difficult for people to come to terms with. But if we begin with food and we begin with language and culture maybe we can get through the difficult period and sharing a conversation. You know, that's, that's my hope anyway. And I, look, I, I'm, I am confident. I, I see the change. I, I see the conversation that 
um, people are, are having with me now, which is quite different to the conversation I had 10 years ago. In an ABC interview recently, you said that one of your ambitions has always been that we do a thorough analysis of Australia pla- Australian place names as a way of bringing the country together. Again, it's you know it's a really yeah. inclusive project that you're talking about that this could contribute to a genuine sort of reconciliation, I suppose. Yeah, I think it's um, it's high time we did that. I've just come back from filming up near Mile Creek, and the, and the towns where I was filming were um, Tinga. Um, Bingara, um, Yula, you know, all Aboriginal names. Mm. You know, no, there was no signboard in the town indicating what, what those names meant. So the tourist is kind of left bereft of information. Um, and I think if we start including this information in every conversation we have about place, uh, then overseas tourists will flock to the country. Mm. Um, we're, we're shooting ourselves in the foot tourism-wise by making no effort to satisfy what is the expressed need of tourists to this country. Within the top three, um, all the time, of overseas tourists is um, introduction to Aboriginal culture. Mm. It always turns up. Mm. Sometimes it's number two, sometimes it's number three, but it's always in the top three. And, you know, we, we, we're stupid not to satisfy that need, and we can satisfy that need. And we can satisfy that need by employing Aboriginal people to uh, introduce tourists to language. So what you're suggesting, I mean, sometimes when you drive past Aboriginal signage, when there is interpretive signage, sometimes it feels like it's a little bit tokenistic. But what you're saying is that, no, this is really important and this is the beginning Mm -hmm. of something that's bigger and will change attitudes to Australian history. I think it will. Um, You know, people sometimes greet me in Melbourne with the word Wamanjika, you know, uh, the greeting, the Gunai greeting uh, for country the, um, and the um, uh, Wurundjeri greeting. Um, that's a significant change and it comes out of the signage. You know, people refer to the bank of the river now uh, down near Fed Square in Victoria as Birrarung Ma. You know, people know it and they're proud to use the word. Mm-hmm. Um, so a change has occurred simply through signage. Mm-hmm. So that brings us to the end of our show. And as you know, we have a very exciting segment at the end, the Glam Slam segment, where we talk about what's coming up in our history diaries. Bruce, what's coming up in your history diary? Well, yesterday we finished our kangaroo harvest. And in a few weeks' time, we're going to harvest panicum up around Cooma. What's panicum? Uh, it's, um, it's the bread that saved... Um, it's the grain that made the flower that saved Charles Sturt's life. Right. Uh, all Australians should be very grateful um, because Sturt was one of the better and less violent explorers in Australian history. And his life was saved by Aboriginal people living in the absolute dead heart of Australia and they fed him on roast duck and cake. So we need to learn about these foods. And, you know, I don't, I'm a fiction writer. You know, that's what I ought to be doing. Um, I shouldn't be on a tractor, um, but I have to do it because I, I have to make sure that Australia has this conversation and that they see that Aboriginal people are involved in the continuing culture, that this isn't you know, something that the Australian agricultural community has discovered. It's something that the Aboriginal community has rediscovered, um, our production of food, and I want Aboriginal people employed in it. That's my aim is that uh, we, we enjoy the foods, 
but we make sure that Aboriginal people are involved in the industry. Mm. Well, that brings us to the end of another Glam City episode for today. Thank you so much again to Bruce Pascoe for talking with us, being our guest. Good on you. Cheers, mate. Take care. Right on. See, See ya. Mate. Bye. If you'd like to hear more from us, head to the 2SER website, 2SER.com. You can also search for us in your favourite podcast app. Hit us up on Twitter. You'll find me under at Anna Hope Clark. This show is produced on the Gadigal land of the Eora people, and we acknowledge that their stories have been told for thousands of years before we started telling ours. Thank you.